WSFAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom buy-in for New Yorkers, the city, steps back from the rush of the news to bring in new voices to take deeper dives and different looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. This week, you'll be hearing from the pseudonymous writer Jeremiah Moss, speaking with my colleague at the city, Deputy Editor Alyssa Katz, in the latest installment of her occasional series, What is New York For? Let's jump right in. Thanks, Harry. Today, I'm talking to Jeremiah Moss, an essayist and author whose work is an ongoing meditation on the essence of New York City, especially as a haven for social outsiders and cultural dissidents. His first book, Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul, built on his blog documenting the closure of only-in-New-York treasures, such as Cafe Edison in Times Square. His new book, Feral City on Finding Liberation in Lockdown New York, tells the story of New York City during the agonizing months from March 2020 through the spring of 2021, when vaccines brought New York City, quote, back to our boring dystopia, Moss writes. Moss presents a view of New York City during the COVID crisis that's utterly different than how the story has been told before. We don't hear from essential workers or from family members of the sick and dying, but we do hear about the city that emerged for everyone else and of how New Yorkers came together to find new ways of communal being during isolation, at least for a while. Welcome to FAQ, Jeremiah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, your invitation to the show. Of course. Um, I have to say, first off, this is the first book I've read that cites the reporting of my news organization, The City, which launched not long before COVID-19. So uh, thank you for for being a reader. It's, It's great to see. Absolutely. Thank you. So I have to say, I experienced some dread and apprehension about reading this book because, you know, these months between March 2020 and the spring of 2021 that you document, uh, you know, during the height of COVID, before vaccines were widely available. I mean, these were some of the most difficult that New York City has gone through. And, you know, we're talking about the same century that had, you know, 9-11, Hurricane Sandy. And this this was really, even compared to both of those, this was really a terrible time. Um, and so the idea of reading about this wrenching experience now, like, well, we're still in so many ways going through it, and we just lived it. What is there to say, and why should we be reckoning with this now? Mm. Well, um, I'm curious. I'm going to ask you a, a question. You were dreading it. Did did it live up to the dread or did, was it a different experience? No, it was, a, it was a different experience. I mean, I, I'm, I'm glad to talk about your, your, your book as well. I mean, I think that it, what you taught, what you really bring out in Feral City is a sense of these possibilities of what New York City can be and really is uh, if we're only to pay attention to them, you know, around community, around social justice. I mean, this is really a story about all of that that happened in the spaces, you know, and and we'll talk about this on the show, but, you know, you you participate in BLM protests and in uh, many other demonstrations, you're connecting with neighbors, um, there's a lot that's going on there. So, yeah. um, so no, clearly there's value there, but I wanted to get a sense from you of like what, um, yeah, what motivated you to document mm-hmm. that at the time and, and know that there would be an audience there to, that sure. it would serve in some way. 
I think um, your answer to my question answers your question, right? That that um, it was such a uh, certainly unique time, and thankfully unique time, right? Um, hopefully, a time we're not going to see again. Although we keep getting warned that there will be more pandemics on the way, but um, the experience of you know twenty twenty going into twenty one, I think that. There's a kind of um, dominant way of telling that story, right? That is like everybody stayed home and it was uh, very lonely and isolating and bleak, which it was for many, many people. Um, And I'm hoping to tell uh, another story, right? Um, Of the people who were out in the streets and what was happening in the, in the city, what was happening in public spaces, um, which I think most people didn't get to witness, really, right? And and which also gets kind of framed, uh, certainly by more uh, right-wing media, as this very destructive time, right? We were burning down the cities and destroying cities and this kind of thing. Um, and so I thought it was really important to show what was happening outside, right? The people who were outside and how we were uh, connecting with each other and knitting together a time of tremendous community connection and and oftentimes joyfulness uh, in a moment of tremendous uh, trauma and tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that is really striking about the book is that it's close to silent about, there isn't really isn't any discussion at all about the, the, the uh, the narrative that so dominated the story of COVID in New York City, which is, you know, it's death and illness and uh, heroic uh, essential workers and responders who were saving lives where they could or consoling the dying through video because we had no other way of connecting. I mean, it was really sure. just this agonizing story. And that really, that's the the backdrop to your book. But uh, did you make a conscious choice in writing this to not address any of that? It's curious that you say that, and I've I've heard that, and I, it's um interesting because the whole second part of the book is about death and dying, and the refrigerator trucks, and the experiences of, you know, uh, reading the the news reports of of the bodies overflowing morgues, and and the horror of all of that, and. There's something about, um, you know, I'm curious also as a psychoanalyst about what what people don't remember, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that doesn't get remembered that it is in the book. Um, It's not what I focus on. Uh, My early readers of the book, you know, I was writing this while things were happening. So my early readers were saying, please don't write too much about that. It's too painful. It's too much right Mm -hmm. now. We can't handle it. Uh, Nobody's going to want to read this it's it's re-traumatizing. And so uh, I cut a lot of it um, because uh, people couldn't bear it. Mm-hmm. No, I want to assure you, I did read the entire yeah, book. And yeah, I think yeah, your, ob- no, I'm sure observation, <laughs> your observation is, is, is an interesting one about what we remember. I do think, though, that in terms of the narrative, right, you don't have characters in the book, for example, who are, let's say, 
a doctor or an EMT worker or someone who survived COVID and is struggling or a family member who's bereaved. I mean, those are not the characters who make up the book. And your book is very very focused on characters and scenes and narratives. You mentioned, sure, that this is happening, you know, you know, but, um, but that is, I mean, I think that is a very specific narrative choice. I'm an editor. I can say Mm -hmm, this as an mm -hmm, editor reading mm -hmm. your book. Um, And that's what I mean. Yeah. I guess I would say that I, I, you know, it's a memoir, right? So uh, I wrote about people that I encountered and I didn't encounter people in the medical field. Um, I was not in hospitals. uh, So it was not, um, it's not where I was. And during that time, that early part of lockdown. So, you know, when, when New York was the epicenter, right? So like uh, mid-March was the beginning of lockdown. And then April was the, probably the worst month, I think. Um, I was very isolated. So there weren't a lot of people that I was even talking to other than people I was running into on the sidewalks and in the parks. Uh, So that also kind of, you know, uh, there's a narrative choice, but there's also just the reality that I was, I was living um, was an isolated one at that time. Yeah, no. And I think that that's really, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't even like, really so much explicitly come out and say it, but the entire book really is this celebration of community and coming together at a time when the whole world, right, and not not just New York City, was living in, in isolation or living through video connections um, and in a kind of virtual set of relationships. So, I mean, was... was um, in terms of what drew you out into the streets and drew you to those connections with people, you know, what did you begin to see going on among the people that you were encountering and how you felt? I mean, there's sort of a, an energy around that human presence, even as we still kept our distance. Sure. Sure. I started to notice it. Um, this connectiveness really early on. So I think, um, you know, I probably starting in April, uh, going into Tompkins Square Park, which is the local park uh, in East Village where I live, uh, and seeing people keeping six feet of distance, but dancing together, listening to music together, um, really starting to talk to strangers. There's a lot of talking to strangers. And I think that people were really hungry for human connection, right? Um and there was a way in which, even though we were masked and gloved, we were all wearing rubber gloves at the time to go outside and keeping the six feet of distance, uh, there was a way in which the barriers between us came down. So there was a kind of you know, unexpected sort of uh, falling away of boundaries um, socially which was fascinating, you know, and, and people just walking down the street would just start talking to you. I mean, I talked to more strangers in the early weeks of, of the pandemic than I think I ever have in my life. And some more strangers talked to me. It was, it was really quite profound. And it's interesting that you say strangers because, you know, you have, uh, and your book really starts with and kind of sustains at different points, this real story of alienation from a whole bunch of other strangers who are living next door to you and above you and below you, what you call the new people. Right. These are, right. are, you know, the the Instagrammers and the brunchers and, you know, the NYU students. It's the East Village of 2020 that you're describing. And then the new people disappear. And you talk about how their disappearance really 
makes way for these other possibilities. And I want to understand that. What is it about the new people? You know, you described conformity, you described this sort of social control over the nonconformist and the queer and everything else. So what was it about the the new people who fled to Connecticut or wherever they uh, would would flee to? What, what How did that change the chemistry? Yeah, it's um, so the new people and, and, you know, something that I describe in the book and I, I think um, may not always come across doesn't mean new newcomers. It means a new kind, sort of a new kind of personality that came into the city in the, in the two thousands in a, in a really big way. And um, they've troubled me from their first arrival. And I've sort of been obsessed with like, why do they bother me so much? What is it about me? What is it about them? What's what's happening here, right? Why do I feel so alienated around these people? Um, and what I came to was this idea of the the ideal neoliberal subject, right? That that there are people, sort of personalities that are produced by neoliberal capitalism, by the kind of consumerism that we live under right now. And that um these are folks who sort of like um, uh, psychologically desubjectify themselves. So there's a way in which in order to fit in with this brand of capitalism where, you know, you are a brand, you are a product, a walking human product, you have to kind of take the humanity out of yourself to some extent. And, and I find that um, a lot of the people who, who come to New York in the 2000s have this strange kind of like, they're there, but they're not there. Um, there's an absence of mind uh, that I find very lonely, very alienating. Uh, you know, my my neighbors, um, especially at that time, you know, I would say hello to them in the hallway, and they would ignore me or look away. And I and I hear this from a lot of uh, New Yorkers that a lot of the these newer folks who are coming in uh, don't engage, don't don't see you, don't see you on the sidewalk, bump into you. There's a there's a real strangeness about them. So. Um, and I'm obsessed with it. I still don't feel like I have my head around it completely. So that's um, how I think of them. And then, and then, so many of them left uh, really in mid March of 2020, or maybe they were staying inside. It's hard to know exactly what happened, but many of them did did leave. The East Village population um, dropped by half, according to the New York Times, or more than half. Uh, so the East Village really emptied out, and and much of um, really white middle and upper class Manhattan really emptied out. This was not a Brooklyn or a Queens or a Bronx or I'm sure a Staten Island phenomenon. It was very much a, a central Manhattan phenomenon. So when they left, there was this kind of like disinhibiting effect, um, which I think is really multi-determined. I think that part of that disinhibiting effect has to do with plague, has to do with l- living in this communal uh, ambient death, this fear that we're all faced with our mortality, uh, all of that uh, can be very um, uh, anti-alienating, right? People really come together in those times. Uh, they can. Um, and I think that that happened in New York. Uh, but also the the people that I call the new people, there's a way in which through their conformity, through their um, abnormal normativity, enforce a kind of conformist way of being and and it radiates from them so that they act as a kind of police force on other people i feel it when they're around me i feel i feel controlled 
Uh, I see other people being controlled. It's not something that's being done consciously. I don't think it's being done intentionally. But I do think that it is part of the process of normativity that moves through them, um, if, that, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, for, for sure. And, you know, what you then have are people finding each other. And I think, you know, you don't really say this explicitly, but I think there's sort of a direct ramp from there into, obviously, not just in New York, the protest movement and the, just the outpouring of rage and grief and shock after George Floyd was killed by a police officer. You know, it's just like um, suddenly the incipient energy just uh, coalesced into this movement. And you were very, uh, you know, you have a lot of descriptions in the book about you, the, the power um, that that really conveyed. So, you know, I think you talked a little bit about, you know, how that whole experience really kind of got hijacked, right, in a lot of media narratives as, you know, definitely, you know, I will say it like looting went on, other very bad things went on undercover of those demonstrations, but the demonstrations themselves needed to be seen. So I want to know like what, what came together in that moment and what is like, you know, you have many protest scenes in, in the book over a period of a year, we had, you know, Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, Occupy City Hall, there is Stonewall, there's Biden, that there's again and again, there are these coming together moments. So what does it all really add up to? I mean, obviously added up to a lot in terms of the reforms that all of the Floyd protests around the world really inspired, but sort of beyond that, what is the legacy within New York City of those movements? That's a good question. I, um, it's hard for me to uh, feel really like hopeful these days, right? So much of that uh, rebellious, uh, resistant energy has been shut down, uh, you know, by mostly by by the police um, at this point. But you know, I think that what happened. I keep going back to in April of 2020, the author Arundhati Roy talked about the pandemic as a, a portal, right? The pandemic could be a portal between one world and the next. And there was this very hopeful statement that she made about that, that that we could kind of like, uh, through that portal, move through capitalism, extractive capitalism into, into another way of, of life. And I think that there was that opportunity uh, in 2020 that happened, right? And, and, and as that portal opened, these other kinds of ways of being, other kinds of affects came tumbling through. And, and one of them, a big one, was this resistance movement. Um, the way that I think about it is that, you know, the pandemic really sort of like didn't stop capitalism, of course, but it made capitalism sort of set back on its heels a bit. And so you could walk through the streets and nobody was shopping because the stores were all closed. The advertisements that were left up in early March of 2020 were allowed to fade and 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 you know droop and fall off the walls, and and nobody cared about advertising anymore. There was none of that stuff. All of that stuff that really um, is brainwashing uh, to all of us. That we take in these messages of you're not good enough. You have to feel envy. We're in a in a scarcity mode, we should be competitive with each other. All of that messaging just sort of fell away. And 
when that happens, we are free to feel and think other feelings and thoughts. And so I think that that had a lot to do with it on a kind of communal psychic level, right? And sadly, what happened in the going back to normal is that all of that came flooding back. And um, unfortunately, you know, we're all too eager to get back to brunch and shopping. And um, it, 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 and that means going back to alienation too. Not that there's anything wrong with some brunch and some shopping, right? But like, um, it, it shut down the other affects. I can think, I think a lot about affects, right? The anger, the joy, the connectivity, um, all of it was just so passionate and powerful and there was space for it. And now it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of space for it anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I, I thought about while I was reading these passages that the kind of union was almost religious that you're describing. And you have, uh, there's a guy in the book, the Jesus of Washington Square Park, who lives in the yeah. fountain. Um, was it a religious experience in any sense of that term? I think it was certainly a spiritual one. I mean, again, going back to the that communal experience of 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 ambient death, you know, uh, being close. I think everybody felt close to death, right? I mean, it was, it was everywhere. I was certainly worried about dying, worried about my loved ones dying. Um, and then to kind of come out of that, uh, out of that spring as the curve flattened and we got some breathing room, literally breathing room. Um, and then the coming together, you know, the Stonewall protests that I was, uh, fortunate to be a part of every week for a year, uh, we called it church, you know, and it was like, it's, it's Thursday night, it's time for church. Um, because it was a very much um, a healing coming together of, of, of people. Yeah. You, you talked before, I think you said it was uh, author Arundhati Roy, right? Who talked about other cities, other possibility or a portal. I think in the book, you also invoked a book I very much Love uh, the city and the city by China Mayville. I hope yes. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, you know, for listeners who don't know that book, it's about it's a, a, an imaginary city that which really is two cities that exist layered on top of one another, um, and there's ways to move from one city to the other, but they kind of exist in a kind of very uneasy coexistence. Um, and you know, I think that when you're talking about this return to the city that we are now, you describe this kind of these two cities kind of sandwiched on top of each other. Um, and I do wonder, thinking about that, if that is, is that sustainable or does that kind of coexistence um, kind of collapse in its contradictions or in warfare, right, between what you're describing as this kind of very capitalist, consumer, uh, conformist city and then the city you describe and feel very much part of, and you certainly have a sense of almost, I think, warfare with that other city, right? You see it as, as something hostile and yeah, can they coexist or how does that, where does that go? Sure. Sure. In the, the Mieville, uh novel, you know, you, you, um, if you're in one city, you're not supposed to see the other city, right? So if you, if you encounter any parts of it, you're supposed to sort of, pretend basically that you don't see it. And, and that's how I feel. 
about the conformist consumerist city, that the people who are moving in that city, who belong fiercely to that city, don't want to see the other city. Uh, and in fact, want the other city uh, to be annihilated and, and erased. And that is what's happening. As we got back to normal, right, we see uh, homeless people being removed, um, black and brown people being harassed in the public parks and, and made uncomfortable, uh, queer people, trans people being harassed. So, you know, there is a way in which um, the city that I try to occupy and and the city that I came to be a part of uh, is being annihilated by that more dominant uh, conformist city. So I think it is a hostile um, relationship for sure. Can they coexist? I think that um, it's very hard to coexist with a system that wants to annihilate you. So Jeremiah, let me ask you, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, like you live in the East Village, which is, you know, basically the backyard of NYU. It's a youth playground has been at this point for decades. Um, why do you stick it out there? Why not move to um, some other part of New York City? Not asking you to move out of New York City, but uh, move somewhere that is more hospitable to creative nonconformist life. There are plenty of places out there. Why Why are you holding out in the East Village? I'm, I'm holding out in the East Village because there's still so much uh, creative life here. You know, there are still uh, those of us who've been here for years, decades, there's still um, a, a draw for creative people, nonconformist, uh, you know, sort of like um, countercultural folks to come to the East Village. So, you know, when I walk through the streets, um, although there's that layer, they talk about the two cities, they really collide here. Uh, you know, there's this sort of like dominant, uh, the sort of really loud dominant population um, of the more sort of what I call the new people, the conformist folks. But then, you know, you can really sort of drop into, in the book I call it substream. It's sort of like, I have to kind of slow down. If I slow down, I can sort of drop into it. And then you see that there are a whole bunch of other people who are still here. Uh, you know, I'll go into the park and there'll be somebody doing spoken word or somebody, you know, there were a couple of guys throwing a football. Um, but then at second glance, you realize that they were also listening to this crazy sort of like atonal electronic music while they were pitching the football and we talked to them and like, you know, the guy was like, Oh, uh, you know, he composed that music. And so, you know, here you have this strange juxtaposition of the, the foot, the all American football with this, you know, atonal electronic music at the same time. So I have encounters here that I just don't have in other places in the city. And I think also like, um, you know, when I visit Brooklyn, there's a Brooklyn is so big that that the counterculture feels very dispersed there to me, and and maybe I just haven't found it. Whereas here in the East Village, again, people people come here to find that still, and certainly uh, during lockdown in 2020, 21, what was so striking to me is that creative young people flocked again to the village, to Washington Square Park, to the East Village. 
you know, in droves. And I thought, wow, this, I, I thought that this was over, but it's not over. People still feel, uh, they still sense this, um, this sort of call to come here. And I don't, I don't see that in other places. So I stay. Well, you might've just answered my last question, but I wanted to ask you, like, what is the purpose of New York City now? Or what should it be? Right. I mean, in each, you know, and I, I think of the history of New York City, it had so many functions where people needed to be in the city, uh, needed to be in that geographic proximity for different economic purposes, different creative or cultural purposes. Um, New York City, there was always a reason to be here. And, you know, now our post-COVID narrative is, well, you can uh, live anywhere, work anywhere, connect with anyone anywhere in the world, work remotely learn remotely. You don't need to be any particular place, and you certainly don't need to be in a big, expensive city. Um, so what is what is the reason to be in New York City, not just now, but what is kind of the kind of uh, essential purpose of the city? You know, if it's not going to be an Instagram backdrop or a hedonist playground, uh, what is it? Why are we here? Well, the city for me has always been a place to go to be a weirdo to you know a place for people who are outside the center um whatever that might mean right and that could be around identity whether that's about queerness or about not being white or not being straight but also about like being in some ways eccentric um outside the norms and so the city has always been certainly not a safe place. There's no such thing as a safe place, but a safer place to be a weirdo, um, to be an other, to to be outside. And you know, I thought that that was something that that had come to an end. But what the pandemic showed me is that people are still hungry to come together. That 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 people who are uh, outside of the norm are still starving to be together and the internet cannot do it for us. The internet, you know, video, video calls are sort of like okay enough to get, get through, but they just can't beat, you know, in-person human connection. And I think that we really uh, learned that during the pandemic because I mean, the coming together in the streets, in the public parks, was just like nothing I've I've seen before. And what happens when people do that is they form coalitions and and they can uh, form rebellions and and make art and and collaborate in art together. And that was happening, you know, in Washington Square Park, in Times Square, and Tompkins Square Park. Uh, it was just really, it was revolutionary and, and beautiful. And um, I will, I will never, I will never forget it. It, it, it changed me and it, it changed a lot of people. Jeremiah Moss, uh, thank you so much for joining FAQ NYC. Um, we've been talking about your book, Feral City on Finding Liberation in Lockdown, New York, um, really talks so much more in depth about exactly what you're talking about here, right? The power of, of what you found uh, during COVID. I think it will inspire some people. It might enrage others, right? Who um, have a different idea of what the story of New York City during COVID should be. But I think that's what uh, makes it an, an interesting and vital book. And, and thank you again for uh, sharing it with us. Thank you so much for talking about it with me. I really appreciate your time and uh, your thoughtful questions.
F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our host today was Alyssa Katz, Deputy Editor at The City, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. Thank you to our guest, essayist and author Jeremiah Moss. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.